0: Thanks. Well, good evening. I'm Luke. I'm one of the leaders here. It's so great to see you. Uh, We're going to look at a story tonight. I want to tell you a story that starts with a king, but really it's about a queen, but really it's about the king. It's a story about being expectant at a difficult time. It's also a story that gives a bit of an explanation about what just happened in that baptism tank and why it was that we baptised people. And it's also a reminder of the story of all of history. And whether any of those things are particularly interesting to you, whether you're like, why did they just do that? Or you're thinking, what is life all about? Or how do I cope when life's difficult? If any of those things in any way appeal to you, I believe God wants to speak to you tonight. And one of the best ways to hear from God is when we speak to Him. So let's pray quickly and then we'll get going. Lord, I thank you. You're already going. You're already speaking to us, meeting with us. Uh, Thank you so much for Lisa and Neo's testimonies. Thank you so much uh, for uh, just that truth that Sandy said, that you often surprise us. And uh, what uh, we were just hearing from Danny and, and others on the stage about this sense of God just grabbing hold of us. A sudden moment in which everything changes. Lord, I thank you you're at work doing that right now. And for those who are just aware of that, would, would you make them keenly aware of it, really sharply aware of, no kind of like, oh, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. No, God was speaking to me. Right then, God was speaking to me. Oh, God, would you open our ears to hear you? And Lord, would you give me grace to speak the words that you want to say, that we might know who you are and what you're about. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to meet a cast of characters uh, this evening for our story. And the one we're going to start with uh, is a king. And in the Bible, he is called Ahasuerus or something like that. But thankfully, he's more commonly known as Xerxes. And I can say that. And so that's what I'm going to call him for the rest of our evening. And uh, here he is, as portrayed in the film 300. He almost certainly had more hair on his chin and his his head than he does in that image and almost certainly had fewer uh, piercings as well. But the important important thing about the guy in that picture is that he looks very angry and you wouldn't really want to go against him, would you? He's Xerxes. He's a king. Kings are famous for their bad tempers, particularly when they are in charge of massive empires. And that's exactly what Xerxes uh, was. His empire stretched from India all the way around and down to Ethiopia. And that meant he just thought he was in charge of everything and everyone. The legend has it that he once whipped the sea for failing to obey him. He's that kind of guy. And his story or the story that he's in, in the Bible, starts with him banishing uh, his first queen, a woman called Vashti, from his court because he was basically having a big party. He wanted to show her off in front of everyone. She didn't want to come out and be shown off. And so he said, right, that's it. And So she is banished never to come near him ever again. He's that kind of guy. That leads us to our second character, who's called Esther. Esther was an orphan who was adopted uh, by her cousin, who we'll meet in a moment. And she was very beautiful, and she lived in the capital city of Persia. And when Xerxes started to miss having a queen around the place, um, he thought, okay, well, I'm going to have a competition to find a new one. Like Persia's got talent, the quest for a queen. And Esther won. Now, whether or not Esther will have felt like she was a winner for winning this competition, it's something that we can't really know. But my guess actually would be she would have preferred not to have won this competition. Because Xerxes, uh, he was the king. He was the king of a massive empire. And kings with massive empires tend to have and do whatever it is that they want to have and do. And he had a whole harem full of women who he would sleep with as and when he wanted to. And part of Esther's audition uh, to become his queen would have involved a knight with him uh, for him to decide whether or not he wanted her to be his queen. And however much you might then win that competition, you know for the rest of your life, things are not going to be pleasant. They're going to be complicated and difficult. She was essentially forced into this situation and trapped, really, um, totally under his power. She'd seen another queen be deposed by Xerxes for simply wanting to do her own thing. And so she knew that however much she might presently be in his favour, didn't take much for his mood to change and for her to be out the door. It's like he's given her a beautiful outfit to wear that's made of steel and she can't move at all. He's trapped her. There's one other important thing to know about Esther, and that is that she is Jewish. The Jews were a tiny nation who had been scattered across the empire after having been thrown out of their own land. Now, no nation likes it when people conquer them and then throw them out all over an empire. But for the Jews, this was particularly disastrous because they were God's chosen people. And God had said to them that he was going to choose them. And through putting them in that land, he was going to bless them and also bless the entire world. So their happiness wasn't just good for them. It was good for everyone. And God said, by putting you in that land, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world and I'm going to rescue the world through you. Well, that didn't look at all on the cards in Esther's day. And her cousin, in fact, had persuaded her to keep her nationality secret. Well, let's meet him. His name's Mordecai. And Mordecai was a very caring kind of guy. So he cared for Esther when her parents died. He cared actually for the king. Uh, He heard about an assassination plot uh, that was uh, uh, being made against the king and he reported it and the king was saved. And uh, the king wasn't necessarily a great friend of his people, but Mordecai was like, well, the king needs to be looked after. So he had done that prior to the bit of the story we're going to look at. He also cared for the future of his people, as we'll see a little later. But there was one person that he had very different feelings for. And that's the last person we're going to meet tonight, Haman. Here is Haman, as played by Jafar. Haman had risen to great power in Persia under Xerxes. And as his influence grew, so did his ego. And he wanted everyone to bow down to him. And mostly, wisely, they did. Because when someone's got a lot of power and they want you to bow down, that's the smartest thing to do. But Mordecai wouldn't. And this drives Haman crazy. It makes him so angry that he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And so he persuades the king that the Jews are this internal enemy that needs to be got rid of. And to kind of sweeten the deal, he offers the king a massive bribe to make it happen. And Xerxes says, sounds great. Where do I sign? And so a Holocaust is announced that on a single day in a year's time, all the Jews in the Persian Empire are going to be killed. Now, any genocide is a terrible evil. But because pretty much all the Jews lived in the Persian Empire, for them all to be wiped out, for them all to be killed, isn't just awful news for them. It's awful news for the world. Because God has said that it was through the Jews that he's going to save the world. And so actually, this means that God's promises kind of seem like they might not come to pass. God has said for hundreds of years that it was through the Jews that he's going to save the world. And now it looks like all the Jews are going to be killed. All the plans seem on the brink of bloody collapse if Haman gets his way. And the awful announcement is made. Mordecai hears about it and he uh, he just goes into mourning because it's so awful. And Esther hears that Mordecai uh, is very upset. She doesn't really know why. She's kind of trapped in the the prison of the palace, as it were. But she, she hears that he's really sad. She tries to find out why. She sends a servant of his, Hathak, to find out what's going on. And he tells her, and he says, listen, Esther, this is awful, awful news, but we've got one chance of being saved. We've got one chance of being rescued. And that's for you, Esther, to go to the king and tell him to cancel this decree that he's made. I know he can't cancel decrees. I know that when you've told an entire empire you're going to do something, it's awkward when you change your mind. But Esther, you're our only hope of changing this. Well, here's what happens next in Esther chapter 4, verse 9. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, there are a few more twists in this tale still to come. And you can read it for yourself. It's a great book to read in one sitting. But Esther's decision here is the human turning point in the story. She tells the king about Haman's plan eventually. Haman is then executed. Mordecai is promoted. And all of those people who were going to kill the Jews are instead themselves defeated. It's a happy ending. It looked pretty rough for a while there. In fact, it looked awful and horrific. But it all changed. And the people were saved. And that's why this story isn't just about a brave queen. It's about the great king. There are glimpses here. If you're a Christian or you know about Easter, glimpses that you might recognise. There is a commitment made to death on one day. And then on the third day, there's life instead. More obviously on the big picture, it's this. The story that God is telling throughout history has a happy ending. Now you may think, how can that possibly be? I'm looking around and it looks awful. I'm looking at my own life and it's a mess. How can you be telling me that there's a happy ending? Well, Christians know how the story is going to end because Jesus, the promised rescuer, is alive. His obedience to death required him to go further than Esther did. Esther goes to the very point of risking her life. Jesus doesn't just risk his life, he gives his life. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But death, the defeater of all kings and rulers, no matter how mighty, even mighty Xerxes who ruled this mighty empire, death got him in the end. No one's ever come back from death apart from Jesus, apart from the mighty ruler, Jesus, he rose from the grave, victorious, alive forevermore. And he returned to the Father. And because he found favour in God's eyes, if you put your trust in him, you find favour in God's eyes. Because you're in him, God sees him in your place. And an eternity with God awaits for all those who put their trust in him. We will live happily ever after. That's the big story of which Esther's story is just an echo, which the stories that we've heard tonight of Lisa and Neo are just an echo. My life was a mess and then Jesus turned it around. And whatever happens for the rest of their lives, at the end of them, they will be with Jesus forever. That is the story of history. That is the story of every Christian's life. It's great news. And because this is the shape of the Christian story, that the story ends with victory and with joy, Christians should be an expectant people now because it's going to end well. And so I want us to look at Esther's story tonight to teach us how to be an expectant people. I know that many of you are visiting tonight, either to see the baptisms or you're still just kind of finding a church to get connected to. Well, we've spent the last few weeks as a church thinking about what's next for us, what God's calling us to do in this next season. And we've been uh, giving it this title, Expectant, and we're defining what's next with three phrases. We want to be a church for all, a community that welcomes and reaches out to people from every background and situation. We want to be a church for all Edinburgh, not just here in Brunsfield, not just on Sundays, but the whole city throughout the week. And we want to be a church where all of us are all in for Jesus. Each of us devoted to him, loving him, obediently following him, giving our lives to him. This is what God's calling us to do. Now, alongside this, we've also announced uh, that we uh, want to increase our eldership. That's the team who leads the church here uh, from three to six. It's currently myself and Dan and Matthew. and We want to uh, add three more guys to that team, Andy, Chris and Sandy, who you see on the screen there. And uh, this is just a reminder for you, if you're a member of Kings, uh, that we want to hear your feedback on these guys, uh, that we love them. We think they're going to do a great job, but we want to hear what you know about them and your thoughts on this whole process. And just to let you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a two-part series explaining what eldership is, why we believe it's in the Bible, and why we believe that a church should be led by a team of elders. And so if you're thinking, well, how do I tell you what I think about these people if I don't know what you're wanting them to do? Two weeks time, we're going to have a two-part series that will help you uh, to understand this. That's just like an internal notice for Kings. Now, pull out all of us again. At a time like this, each of us has a response to make whether you are a long established member of this church, whether you are uh, visiting today to work out if maybe uh, this will be a church that you want to become part of. Maybe you're a guest here. You're not even sure if you believe in God. God is on the move. God's doing things. God's speaking. We've heard him speak tonight. And you need to decide if you're going to get involved with what he's doing. And if you get involved... God calls you to be expectant. And Esther's a great example of this to us. And so I want us to look at three characteristics of expectant people that she demonstrates. And I want by doing this to challenge you to consider whether you're living like this. So three characteristics. Here's the first. Expectant people are not defined by their present circumstances. Now, the most famous line In Esther's story is when Mordecai says to her, she wavers about going to the king. He says to her, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It takes an expectant attitude to think that way. Because Esther knew that she was in an extremely precarious position. She is married to the most powerful man on earth whose temper cannot be trusted. She has seen what's happened to other people who get in his way. It goes badly for them. He hasn't called to see her for a month. It's that kind of marriage. It's, you know, he's like, you come if I want. If you don't, then you don't. And that might have meant that she'd fallen out of favour. It might have meant that her effect, uh, his affections were being replaced by someone else. If she goes to him and he doesn't want to see her, she gets killed. That's how it works. So when Mordecai makes his request, when Mordecai says, will you go to the king? She quite naturally replies, it is not the best time. This is, this is a difficult time for me to do that kind of thing. And as well as the external challenges that she faces, which I would think most of us would say, that's enough. It's a tough situation for her to be in. I think also she just had internal insecurities that were quite, you know, kind of understandable. She would have had to make a lot of compromises that she probably wished she hadn't made. Jews were not supposed to marry non-Jews, let alone kings of empires who were persecuting Jews. They had laws about food and other aspects of daily life, which they were meant to live out in such a way that marked them out as distinct from the rest of the world. Now, they could do that when they're in their own land, in their own nation. But it's really difficult doing that in another nation. It's even more difficult doing that in the king's palace. Clearly, she wouldn't have been able to obey all that she was supposed to have been obeying. And so surely she would have thought, God, must, there must be someone better to do this. There must be someone better suited to do this, both in terms of their circumstances and their life. When God calls us to act in faith, most of us have some convincing sounding reasons to reply in the negative. We have a lot going on. It's just a really difficult time. The circumstances are difficult. We're not sure we have the gifting required. We're not sure we have the character required. We're aware of our previous failings or disappointments. All these responses betray a lack of expectation. They are understandable. They are common, but they need not be the end of the story. Because expectant people realize that God loves using messed up men and women in difficult circumstances. When Jesus came to earth, he found the people who weren't just on the fringes of society. They were outcasts from society. And he found those kind of people and said, come in and be part of my team. He also found people who were running very successful businesses, who had good career trajectories that were, they were on. And he totally interrupted them and said, follow me instead. And all the reasons they might have had for not following him were silenced by his command. Leave it, stop it, drop it, forget it, follow me. He says to everyone that following him means dying to your present way of life and starting to live a new way. That's why we baptised Lisa and Neo in the way that we did. We buried them and then we brought them up to new life because that's what Christianity is all about. It's the death of your old way of life and it's the start of a new way. If that's the case, what is holding us back from doing radical things for God? Surely, If we're really honest, it's that we don't believe that God could do something amazing through us. We're not expectant. We're too aware of what's going on now and not hopeful enough about what could happen next. I know that when we respond this way to God, it's not always about logic. It's often about fear and emotions, but let me just appeal to logic briefly. Because if present circumstances are the defining factor in whether or not God can do great things, surely the church in places like China, where people are persecuted even unto death for being Christians, those kind of places would not have growing churches or indeed any churches. And yet they are where the fastest growing churches on earth are. This has been true throughout history as well as around the world now. Often where persecution is sharpest, the church grows fastest. So present circumstances, being a veto to God being at work, just doesn't make sense. Some of us are tempted to think when everything's in the right place, then I'll be ready to do something for God. But God prefers to work when we are weak rather than when we think we've got it all together. And the reason for this is that when he does that, he gets all the glory. There's no other explanation. People can't say, that's well, it's because you are perfectly positioned. It's because you are so excellently fitted for this circumstance. It's because everything was going right for you. It's like, no, how did that even happen? The God of the impossible did it. Esther's present situation is extremely difficult. That's why God used her. And so expectant people learn not to assess what God wants to do through them by how things are currently going. A few weeks ago, George Gibson put it like this. He said, God is behind us in his faithfulness and ahead of us in his promises. That's why all that matters about the present is that we expect God to use us in it. The second thing about expectant people is that they burn their bridges They make moves that they cannot turn back from. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Now, just to reassure you, particularly if you're exploring Christianity and you've heard this invitation to Alpha, you think, man, does every decision a Christian make have a life or death feedback loop? Not all of them do. But you know what? Many of them require dying to ourselves many of them require dying to our preferences, to our comfort, to our reputation. The world is upside down from God's way. And so anyone following him is going to look odd. Esther struggled with this. She was leading a double life. She was secretly Jewish whilst outwardly appearing like everyone else. She even had two names, a Jewish one, Hadassah, and the Persian name by which she was known. I mean, maybe that's what's going on for you. Maybe literally you are known by something else amongst everyone else. And when you're in church, you have almost, you have actually a different name. It's that extreme a difference. Jesus told us, no one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. However much we might want to fit in with everyone around us, at some point or other, Christians should appear starkly different because we are following a different master. We're going in a different direction. We're dancing to a different tune. We have different obligations and priorities. I used to think that I was being a great Christian witness because no one ever noticed that I was a Christian. (laughs) which meant that I was like them. And for some reason, I thought that would help them see somehow that Jesus was the Lord of my life and meant all the difference. Which when you say it like that, in a moment like this, you think, how ridiculous. But tomorrow, that might sound more appealing. This was Esther's moment. This was her decision moment. She's faced with either continuing to try to serve two masters, which by the way, always means serving the one who isn't God. Or she could step out in expectant faith. Because The reason is God wants all of us. That's why you can't serve him and someone else. And so you'll always end up serving the other person instead. This was Esther's moment to step out in expectant faith. Baptism is the moment when we declare our decision. It's why we should do it early early in our Christian life because we're declaring how we're going to make all the decisions to come. Because as well as speaking about uh, death and new life, baptism is also a picture of the exodus. That's a story in the Old Testament uh, when God's people, they were in slavery in Egypt and he brought them through the Red Sea and out and into freedom to follow him instead. And baptism's like that. You go in as one kind of person, you go through the waters and then into a newfound freedom that actually, when we say freedom, we think, oh, freedom to do whatever I like. No. Freedom to follow God, freedom to belong to God. You, You were God says you did belong to Pharaoh, to slavery, to slavery, to sin. You go through the waters into freedom to follow God, to belong to God. Baptism is that moment of declaring that decision. That's why it's so important that you do it as a believer and not have it done to you as a baby. Now, I've talked about burning bridges and baptism water, which might seem like a bit of a mashup of metaphors and not very clear. So let me just put it like this. There must be a difference. There must be a distance between how Christians live and how those who don't belong to Jesus live. Like Esther, it could mean awkward changes going against what everyone around you would do. In the summer before my final year at uni, God grabbed hold of me. Like I said, I thought by living exactly the same as everyone else and really doing whatever I wanted, I would convince people that Jesus was the Lord of my life. I'm not sure he was the Lord of my life at that point. But during that summer for my final year, he grabbed hold of me and I realised his love for me and I loved him and I just knew everything had to change. And so it did. I stopped a whole load of things I'd done before. I started doing uh, new great things. Instead, it was wonderful. But then I went back to my old flat and my old flatmates and they had had no idea what happened to me over the summer. And that was awkward because they had expectations of how I was going to be and what I was going to do. And I had to just keep saying, No, I I don't actually do that anymore. No, I'm going to do this instead. Yes, I am now doing this instead of that. So, yeah, I know it's awkward. I almost got shouted at for not getting drunk on my birthday. The guy was like, what has happened to you? That was a good question. Now, maybe people are more sensitive now. Maybe like, oh, I'd never, that would sound awful. People would say, oh, if that's what you want to do, I really respect that. It won't take long if you're a Christian, to find a point at which you will not be respected for the decisions you make or the decisions you want to make. And then you face a choice. When we tell all the different types of people in Edinburgh, they all need to bow the knee to Jesus. When we move to an area of the city with worse housing and schools and amenities because it needs Christians to live there and influence it. When we have less time and less money than we had before because we're devoting ourselves to Jesus. And people who care for us say, You are throwing everything away. There will be awkward moments. There will also be risky changes. Esther's actions are a high tariff move. Yeah, you get this wrong and it's all over. But she walks out of safety and conformity and into faith and destiny. Will you do this? Will you live this expectant life? People often think, well, how do I get from where I currently am to living an expectant life? I think you just do some things that are radical. I think you just do some things that are hard choices, that are awkward choices, that are big changes, that, are, that seem risky. Get in the habit of making radical choices without needing guidance. Did you notice Esther didn't say, Well, if God wants me to get involved in this, he will make the king invite me without me having to risk anything, and then I'll know that it's what God wants because he will guide me into it. And that does sometimes happen, but I think very often Christians spiritualize passivity and unbelief. We find ways of explaining ourselves out of difficult situations. We should pray. Esther prayed. We should act boldly. Esther acted boldly. You don't need to think when you walk past a homeless person on the street, God, would you give me some guidance as to whether or not I should speak to them? They're right there. It's all the guidance you need. You invite your colleague or your, uh, your classmate uh, to come to Alpha. You know, you think, is this the right time or will, it, will the right time be later? You have no idea what later is going to involve. Often people think, well, if I invite them and they don't come, I'm going to have to keep sitting next to them for ages. It's like, well, the logical conclusion of that is that you'll wait till they're not there before inviting them. Cancel your subscriptions if they're taking up all your money and your time, or even frankly, if they're just taking up some of your money and your time. Get up early to pray. Say yes to a serving request or an invitation to lead a small group. Here's Francis Chan's assessment of much of Western Christianity. He says, we're busy reassuring one another that God wants us to do what's safest for our families and to pursue God in a way that looks suspiciously similar to what we naturally do if our only concern was our own comfort and happiness. Now, if you feel that is not me at all, all right. But if that stings at all, you need to take note of this. Now, I don't know what a risky change would look like for you. But you should be able to feel it like Esther felt it. And others should notice it too. Third thing about expectant people is this. Third and final point. Expectant people will be vindicated. She goes in. She waits. He looks up. He smiles. She's in. God was in it. The rest of the book of Esther shows how God works to vindicate Esther and Mordecai and preserve his people. That's why she prayed. That's why we should pray. Because she knew that only God could make this happen. That's why Christians pray, because they're saying, God, you've got to come in here. You've got to be involved. You've got to do this because I can't do it. But you could. You can. You will. God rewards and vindicates the things we do in expectant faith. He loves it when we live that way. When we offer to pray for someone who's sick. When we make sacrificial decisions for the good of others when we hold on to what the Bible teaches, despite massive pressure all around us to abandon it, sooner or later, we will be proved right. It is going to happen. Not because we're really smart, but because he's told us. Because as we said right at the beginning, he's bringing it all about to an end. Esther's story teeters on the edge of horror, but ends happily. And that's why it's not just about a queen, it's about the king. The king who faced down death, who died and on the third day rose again, never more to die. Jesus' life and death and resurrection have won eternal life for all who put their trust in him and who who will follow him. And this is a happy ending that no amount of sorrow in this present life can tarnish. This is a victory so complete that it redefines everything that went before it. It's that total. Apostle Paul said, I consider the things I'm going through now to be light and momentary troubles compared with the weight of glory that is to come. That's how Christian maths works. That's how Christian expectations work. That something is going to happen so great that everything I do now will be as dust in the balance. Even if the risks we take don't come off, even if persecution engulfs us and brings us down to the grave, Jesus will raise us up. Jesus will bring us to himself. He will commend us for our faith. And we'll say, it really was all you. And then we will be brought to be with him forever. And in his presence, the Bible says, there is fullness of joy forevermore. Christians expect this. And they can expect glimpses of that certain future now as they follow Jesus, as they do whatever he tells them to do to advance his kingdom. As they pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. If you're a Christian here today, commit yourself to doing this, to being an expectant person, to living accordingly. And if you don't know that that's the future awaiting you, take hold of it today. We've got three uh, copies of the Bible that we would love to give you. You're welcome to take that Bible. You need never come back here ever again, but we want you to have that. So You can speak to myself or Sandy at the end of the meeting. We'll give you a Bible. You can come back next Sunday. It may not have been your plan, but you know what? There's a time when we just have to make an awkward decision. And it could be for you to come back next Sunday and hear Josh speak about why Jesus. Get more detail on this. And then you could come the following Thursday to our Alpha course. Again, you might have something else on. Let me tell you, this is more important. You, know, you don't know what's going on in my life. I, I don't, but I know this is more important. I wouldn't want you to miss the opportunity to ask your questions and to hear and see the full picture of who God is and what he's doing. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for two wonderful stories that we've heard this evening of Lisa and Neo, how you change lives and how you set them on a new trajectory with a new destination because they have a new Lord, one who has died, but behold, is alive forevermore. Oh God, would that be the story of every person in this room? Lord, for those who don't yet know you, would you be gracious to them today? Would you open their eyes today? They realize they can come before a king and find favor and life. And Lord, for those of us who do follow you, help us to really follow you. Follow you closely, not at a distance. Follow you boldly, not trying to live this dual life. Oh Jesus, make us an expectant people for your glory and for the good of those around us who need us to be this. Amen.